0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 65 of The Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And happy second anniversary to us Yay!
1: happy anniversary <laughs> two years
0: we've been doing this i can't believe it time flies time does fly and i have to say it's been all fun totally so yep. thank you chris Aww. for being my my book cougar in crime <laughs> <get> you, <laughs> well at the end of this episode we have our interview with bianca murray the author of hum if you don't know the words so stay tuned for that There are some spoilers. Yeah, a couple spoilers. Nothing too significant, I don't think.
1: You know, some things happen pretty early in the book. Mm -hmm. We had a wonderful time talking with Bianca, and the book is just amazing. If you haven't read it yet, please do.
0: Yeah. You won't regret it. You will not. As a matter of fact, you will start doing some slow-mo page turning, which is what (laughs) I did because I did not want it to be over. Exactly. (laughs) So what are you currently
1: reading, Chris? Well, I am still listening to Becoming by Michelle Obama. I think I am about 60%, 70% maybe. I'm at the point, I'm at, in 2004. That's exactly where I am. Okay. Where she's talking about how Barack gave the speech at the 2004 Democratic National Convention and how everyone went haywire and gaga over him, um, which was a tremendous speech. I remember yeah. listening to it. And I'm, I'm loving it. It's, it's such a neat memoir to read. I think for anyone... But for me, like, I am from Chicago. I, we grew up, like, maybe 10 miles apart. Very different neighborhoods. But still, like, she mentioned so many places that I'm familiar with. So that's kind of fun.
0: I was thinking about you when I read it, because it's definitely a love story to Chicago as well. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it, too. And um, I think I saw a headline that it's the number one selling book of the year. It is. Yeah, Yeah. the
1: number one seller of the year, which I think is fabulous. And it's
0: a great audio book to listen to. I'm listening to it on regular speed. And I have to admit that I have a slight obsession in the last two weeks. I've been watching interviews with her. She's been everywhere, so they're not hard to find, and I just can't stop. (laughs) I just love it.
1: (laughs) I've been trying not to just because I want to get through the book. Yeah. I know
0: you've you've already read it. So
1: once I finish it, I'm going to be on that that cycle for sure. Yeah. And I'd love to go see her, but that's not going to happen this time around.
0: Well, that's why I've been watching interviews. It's kind of, what do you say, the second best option, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I'm reading Elevation by Stephen King. Oh, my gosh. It's my first Stephen King. That's a surprise. I know. Well, I've heard so much about it, and it's a novella, so I feel like, oh, it's a good place to start, you know? Right, yeah. And um, it takes place in a post-Trump world. It's after the election of Trump. Um, It's the ideas behind it are conservatism, homophobia, It takes place in Castle Rock, which I guess is a town that's appeared in other novels of Stephen King. I don't know that. I mean, I I think I read that on the back or something. I wouldn't have known that. But I picked it up when I was at Northshire and started reading it. And was like, ooh, I've I've got to read this one. So I'm excited to be in the Stephen King club. Yeah, he just sucks (laughs) you right in, doesn't he? Oh, my God. What an amazing writer. Yeah, he really is. Yeah, with very few words, which I appreciate. Mm -hmm. Although I know some of his books aren't that way, but with this novella... It definitely is. Yeah. And I didn't realize that he has written so many short stories and short stories that have been made into... Or maybe I shouldn't call them short stories, novellas that have been made into movies, mm-hmm. like Shawshank Redemption and Stand By Me. And Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So.
1: He is definitely a prolific writer. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Love him. Um, the other book I'm reading is Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan. And I am... 35, 40% into it. And I don't know if I'm going to keep going. I can't decide. I wrote on Goodreads that I'm like a little kid who's like struggling to stay awake because she's afraid she's going to miss something <laughs> if, um, if she falls asleep. I, you know, it's a good story. It's about a young girl in her journey and in, into becoming a young woman. It's set during World War II. She's working in the Navy Yards right now, the Naval Yards. And a gangster guy, a guy who owns nightclubs, so it's their, their stories. And they met up when she was a little girl and their paths crossed again. I'm just at that point right now. So I'm probably going to stick with it. But there's, yeah, it's, it's a weird story. Mm, like I'm yeah. enjoying it, but there's nothing propelling me. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I can't mm. really figure out or identify what it is. And I, you know, I did look on Goodreads and some of my friends, a lot of them bailed on it.
0: Oh, wow. They just
1: said, you know what? Not much is going on, and they keep waiting for the story to kind of start. Hmm. But I think what's keeping me going is the fact that it involves ships, yeah, and World War II, right? Which are two things that I I'm interested about.
0: Because when I saw her, remember, I went up to Stonington Library mm-hmm. in the summer and saw her, and when I listened to the backstory of why she wrote the book, I thought, oh, Chris has to read this book. Yeah. But of course, that's different than sitting down and reading it. So yeah, well, and
1: I I got it from the library on a, mm-hmm. as an ebook, mm-hmm. and I did your trick finally, and I shut off my Wi-Fi <laughs> on my e-reader, so it's past due. But
0: I'm just gonna keep going, I guess. Maybe we should tell the listeners about this trick, which yeah. a head librarian at my old library taught me, so I don't feel like it's too against the law. <laughs> <laughs> which is if you are reading on a source that you don't use you know for work and things like that where you need to be online with it you can shut off the wi-fi on your e-reader and then the library cannot fetch it back yeah now i have to admit i don't know what that does to people who are waiting to get their copies i can only imagine that it delays their opportunity to read it interesting
1: question i wonder if it does yeah if there's a librarian out there who knows the answer to that let us know
0: because then that will alter our behavior, possibly. Possibly. <laughs> I don't know. Because this head librarian that told me, she was like, "Ah, oh, shucks. Just turn off your Wi-Fi. Then yeah. we can't get it back. And I was like, OK. <laughs> but then I started to think about the consequences of my actions. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm an upholder. But, you know. Yeah. I've still done it before.
1: <laughs> well, the first time it happened to me, I was shocked. That yeah. I was reading, a, it was Cherno's biography of George Washington. I remember it very well. And we were gone for a weekend in a cabin somewhere. And I was, you know, I got up early, I started a fire, I had my coffee, I was,
0: boom, it was gone. It's so shocking. I was
1: just like, what the, and because I thought I would just pay fines,
0: like with a hard copy. No, no, they just suck it right off your machine. It's all smoke and mirrors (laughs) to me. I don't know how it works. Um, (laughs) I'm not reading anything else. Nor am I. Well, what did you just read? I read...
1: Kingdom of the Blind by Louise Penny. Which is <laughs> the 14th Armand Gamache, uh, set in Three Pines, the fictional town of Three Pines up in Canada. And I loved it. I just love her writing. She just has a way of bringing such warmth into the pain of criminal investigation. Mm. Because people die in the books. You know, this is a murder mystery series. And it doesn't shy away from the hard things of life like death and drugs and addiction betrayal but she also presents it with such a good counterbalance of people struggling to do the right thing and trying to figure out what the right thing is and making really hard decisions that not everyone would necessarily agree with but that may get the job done Mm. i think he's one of the most armand gamache the main character i think he is one of the most complex investigators i've come across
0: Wow. Yeah,
1: I really like them.
0: Well, I know Will Schwaby, our friend and fellow <laughs> podcaster and wonderful writer, said he thinks this is one of the best yet in the uh, yeah, series, that it yeah. just keeps getting better. I
1: think so, too. And there was a blogger who, who didn't think so. She thought this was one of the weaker hmm. um, entries, and she's actually feeling like the series is running out of steam, which I'm not feeling that at all. I'm amazed by Penny's ability to weave in past things from past books into the current book mm. like in this case in kingdom kingdom of the blind one of the paintings that one of the characters makes clara is her name th- this painting was a central painting in a past book is now a s- kind of you know important in this book mm. and i just love that kind of stuff it makes me think of you know, like J.K. Rowling mm-hmm. and how intricate the plotting was with Harry Potter. Yeah. And how she brings things around and weaves things in. Um, so I, I thought it was great. And in this book, there, there are two storylines. Um, Gamash, for those of you who have read the series, he's under investigation for what happened in the last book. Um, there is a drug, a really intense opioid, that is going to be released on the streets soon that is more powerful than anything. Mm. And people are definitely going to die.
0: So that's kind of current day. Very current day. Because we just
1: had that happen in New Haven a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. There was a bad lot of something and there were tons of people who auded. Yeah. So with this drug, you have um I I won't say much because okay. I don't want to give away any plot, yeah. anything, because one of the joys of Louise Penny, I think, is the unfolding. Mm-hmm. Um the other plot line that goes throughout this book is an inheritance. Struggle between two families, and this struggle has been going on for something like 130 years. Oh, wow! So, way back in Austria, in you know, the 18 whatevers, some rich guy who was titled in his will left everything equally to his two twin sons. And ever since then, both families, you know, that split off from those two sons, have been battling over the fortunes mm. of this family. So, it involves that the family feud issue Mm. going on hence kingdom of the blind and inheritance uh there's so many metaphors going through the book about both of those things and what's really funny is you know how i've mentioned before that i'm 52 and i keep seeing 52 in literature and books that i'm reading wouldn't you know there's a character in this book who's he's 52 oh wow (laughs) like he's 52 like so it's just i don't feel like it's random right yeah like it's kind of like when you buy a new car and you never noticed that car on the road before, and all of a sudden you see the car everywhere. Yes, I kind of—it's
0: probably that way with yeah. this number. Yeah, but anyway,
1: I, I thought that. Well, that happened a to me. Remember,
0: I dated this guy named Peter, <laughs> and then I swear every book I dated—that was past tense—every book I read for about two years had a Peter character, <laughs> and so... I was like, "What?" <laughs> yeah. Anyway, moving um, on from that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Just one more thing I wanted to mention about uh, this, this latest uh, Penny entry is that Cadet Amelia Chocat, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, is in this book as well. And she's a young woman character that Gamash. he has uh, one of his M.O.s is taking people who are misfits and at the point of kind of losing it all and kind of going under, He taking them under his wing because he sees something in them. And she's one of those characters. She was a drug addict and a prostitute. And in a prior book, he brings her in to the academy,
0: Mm. to the police
1: academy. So she's in this book as well. She's kind of a little bit like a Elizabeth um,
0: Salander Salander Mm -hmm. character, you know. That's girl with the dragon tattoo. Yeah,
1: spiky hair, bad attitude, you know. But I really like her, and I think
0: she probably has a future in this series. Or maybe she's going to be a spinoff series. Does Louise Penny yeah. ever talk about that? Not that I've heard. Mm.
1: Not that I'm mm. aware of. So maybe that's something we can ask her when we see her on Sunday. Yes.
0: So I'm going to ask you a question that um, might um, do damage to our friendship. Uh oh. <laughs> Do you think it would be okay to start with this book in the series? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Okay. I think
0: it would be. And I know some people are yelling at
1: the radio right now <laughs> <laughs> as they hear that. because. Um, and I used to be the kind of person who would say, you have to start at book one with any series mm-hmm. because what's the point? Right. You miss all the richness. And you will miss the richness of these characters and what they've been through and their relationships. But I think it's a great standalone too. Okay. Yeah, I do. And I think, you know, as I've started reviewing more for Criminal Element, I've jumped in the middle of series mm-hmm. or the beginning of series with whatever book is coming out. And right. if it's a strong book, I think it'll it'll hold its own. Right. And, and I think if you have to rely on the books that came before, then maybe it's really not that great of a series to begin with.
0: Well, there's also to me the pressure of saying, you know, do, do can I read 14 books you know and I yeah. have read the first book in the series mm-hmm. but you know it starts to feel daunting like I think well oh, I'll do that when I retire or right. something you know yeah. so it puts off your maybe pleasure of reading a really good book mm-hmm. you know because you feel like you have to go back exactly yeah no I think you could just jump in
1: okay with this one and I'm happy to loan you my copy okay Ooh. um yeah I think I think it's really good I was gonna say something there was a point there oh I, I started reading her when I think she had like maybe six books out. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that hard. Like, mm-hmm. I did spend like that summer, like trying to find the book at used bookstores and libraries and everything. Yeah. And that was before she had her first uh, New York times bestseller before it appeared. Okay. Um, At the, on the list. And I was actually at a book event in Illinois when there were just about 20 people there to wow. see her. And she announced that she had just gotten a call the night before from her agent or editor saying that her book was going to be appearing in the number one slot on the new york times bestseller list wow maybe not the number one it might have been appearing at nine or ten or something yeah. but it was appearing appearing on the list in the top ten and now is her huge
0: right and now her events are not in bookstores they're yeah. off-site in big places in big and they places. sell out yeah so absolutely you knew her back in the day chris back
1: in the day thanks to my friend missy If you're listening, Missy, it's all because of you. Oh, nice. (laughs) She has spread the Louise Penny love
0: all throughout Illinois. Wow. (laughs) Well, maybe that's why she hit the New York Times bestseller list. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I read His Favorites by Kate Walbert. I got to see Kate at RJ's in Madison this summer. She's a local author. She lives in Stony Creek. I think she splits her time between Stony Creek and New York, and so she had a great turnout of local neighbors and friends that's there great. and um this book started i thought of you dear willa cather fan because it started with a willa cather quote but you may have a past already the darkest ones come early <laughs> willa cather my mortal enemy
1: oh my gosh my mortal enemy that's the next willa cather book for the willa cather book club oh in january right on and you know what else
0: Today's willa cather's birthday Happy birthday, birthday. Happy birthday. Willa Gather! Happy birthday, Willa Gather! That's exciting. Yeah. December 7th. She
1: know. would have been 145 years old. Oh my God, that's <laughs> hilarious.
0: Well, this is a very sad tale. So that quote is really a good one, I think, for mm-hmm. this book. Because it is about a teenager who's, and this happens in the very beginning of the book. She's driving her two best friends in a golf cart and being silly on the country club's across the country clubs golf what do you call it um greens greens Mm. and um flies over a hill and crashes and one of her best friends passes away gosh which is a terrible tragedy and it's something i believe people never recover from i had as a teenager growing up two sets of friends who had car accidents that involved deaths Mm. and it's it's tragic, obviously, for the families who lose their loved ones. It's also tragic for the people if they live yeah. through the, the crash. And that's what this book is about. The story is told from the perspective of the young woman who was the driver. And she's telling to the story to someone called Master. And I won't spoil what that means, but it is a story about vulnerability and the loss of a good friend and that then you are more vulnerable to people who want to take advantage of you. Mm -hmm. And she ends up leaving her town um, and going to a boarding school and ends up in a situation where she is taken advantage of. So it's a very sad tale. Mm -hmm. It's a novella. It's short. I read it in two sittings. I think Kate Walbert's writing is brilliant. It's spare, but weaves an incredible tale. And one of the things that I thought was really thought provoking about the book is that when you are a teenager and you're getting, you know, people so intimately that then when the person dies, people can portray that person much differently than how you experience them. Mm. So it's yet another layer of grief because you there, you know, you've lost this person that you shared these incredible intimate times with and your your formative years but nobody knows them the same way you know right our families don't know us the way that our friends know us you Especially know at that age yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and I thought she portrayed that so magnificently oh. I and mean, it made me so sad but yet I enjoyed every minute of reading it mm-hmm. you know so well wow, that's
1: fascinating I'm gonna have to check that out because the quote from my mortal enemy that's a novella too and it's it's a brutal story as Mm. well it's painful interesting so i'm now i'm really curious to read that together yeah
0: yeah and i also think when i spoke about it before i talked about how there is kind of this me too element to it because it is about a young woman being taken advantage of and i think it's interesting to see that from the victim's point of view and to see the basis of where people's vulnerabilities lie Mm -hmm. and i thought kate walbert dealt with that so Wow. Yeah. So again, it's called His Favorites by Kate Walbert. Nice. Well, I didn't read anything else. You didn't? I read Aidi, I think okay. is how you say it, by Roxane Gay. This is her book of short stories that was originally published in 2011. And then after the year of Roxane Gay, I'm saying that with air quotes and jokingly, <laughs> um, it's been republished with a beautiful new cover by Grove Press. This is kind of a running theme. I've heard, I'll talk about it in my Biblio Adventures, too, of authors who become overnight successes, Mm -hmm. you know. Roxane Gay, if you watch interviews with her, worked her ass off to be in the position she's in now. Yeah. You know, she worked as a, a day job, you know, as an instructor, which is not easy work. She has been writing stories and being rejected for years yeah. and really worked hard to start some various um, small presses and things like that. So I'm thrilled that she's experiencing the success she is today, but she certainly is not an overnight success. Right, exactly. she's a... But this, but this set of short stories, you know, because her books are selling well was republished and a, like I said, beautiful cover It's a it's a love story to Haiti, which is her home country. You know, both of her parents are from Haiti. There are a couple uh, short stories that are erotica. And in the back, she talks about the different presses where they appeared. And one of them was in Best American Erotica 2004. So they're fun. Yeah. So, so it was a best. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty good. Um, there also is a story in here that I'm dying to know. if um, She wrote a novel called The Untamed State, which is a very difficult book. Wonderful. I five-starred it. Her writing's amazing. But it is about rape. And she wrote a story in here that feels like the precursor potentially to that novel hmm. so I would love if I got a chance to ask her that question I would ask her um, but it's it's a small book very quick read this is another one I kind of gobbled up in two sittings I had a really hard time when I finished Hum If You Don't Know The Words by Bianca Mare mm-hmm. in just picking up another novel yeah so I feel like this the novella by Kate Walbert and this set of short stories really helped kind of cleanse my palate and get me ready for Easy. another novel, yeah. Yeah. you know. That's great. Yeah, I had that yeah. experience, too, with Hum. Yeah. yeah. So, again, Aidi by Roxane Gay. Nice. I picked that up at the airport
1: in Chicago the last time I was coming back. Oh, you did? Yeah, I haven't read it yet, but okay. it's waiting patiently for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I felt like as I was reading it, like, stop, you know, just read a story, put it down, read something else. But I couldn't. Yeah. I wanted to keep reading. That's great. You know, yeah. Which is a way that I typically do read short story collections and I've talked with other people about I mean sometimes there's a book like Olive Kittredge where they're connected short stories Mm -hmm. but if it's just a set of standalone short stories it sometimes you give them more thought if you stop and you know put it down and read something else and come back to another story but I usually keep turning the pages. Yeah. So. I think that it's like listening to an
1: album mm-hmm. back in the day, yeah. right? Because I think like an album, a short story collection, they're not all created equally, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So if you hit a short story that wasn't maybe to your liking, you might not pick that book up again yeah. unless you are reading it consistently.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Biblio Adventures. Yes, I had two really good ones. Nice. <laughs> I went to RJ's in Madison and saw Virginia Soul Smith. She wrote a book called The Eating Instinct Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. Um, she's a Guilford native, That's which awesome. I had no idea. <laughs> she doesn't live here now, but that was kind of fun. So she definitely had. Um, some locals uh in the audience and she had worked at RJ's in high school and through college that's awesome yeah so she said it was really interesting to be back there you know where she had seen authors come in and here she is was fabulous and she has a really interesting background because she was a writer of um she wrote a lot about food that's kind of where she got her start as a freelance writer And she was writing a lot about what she realized was diet culture Mm -hmm. and the different diets, fad diets and stuff. And she, it really started to trouble her and just, you know, all these ways we're told to eat, but not necessarily told how to feel good. Mm -hmm. And then through the course of her career, the organic world kind of took off and Michael Pollan, Omnivore's Dilemma and things like that. And she started to write about that culture and how to eat healthy, but she realized quickly that it was more telling people how to do things right. Mm -hmm. I'm using air quotes. And that was a lot of guilt of, you have to cook from scratch and you have to buy organic. And, um, you know, it it kind of set a lot of people um, to the side because they didn't necessarily have access to fresh vegetables and things like that, or organic chicken. And she grew more concerned about- There's even a condition. I forget what the name is
1: for that, but there's a condition now people who are so obsessed with eating clean mm-hmm. and healthy that they
0: have kind of slipped over into unhealthy behavior. But sorry, yeah, go no, I think that's what the point she's making. And and then the next thing that happened in her life as she was thinking about these things is she had a, her first baby, and her baby was born with a congenital heart defect, so she needed to have surgery very quickly after she was born. And the two of them never got to bond and really get nursing figured out and all of that. And her daughter developed, because she had a feeding tube, a disdain for eating. Poor little thing. Yeah, Yeah. really horrifying. And a condition that people suffer from, you know, babies as well as adults. And so in order to help retrain her daughter on how to eat, she had to do some research and to learn and as a writer and a researcher it kind of fit right into her life mm-hmm. and she one of the cathartic ways that she worked through this situation was to write and blog about it and that was the genesis for this book yeah. so she started interviewing people and to better understand you know how we're told to eat how we establish these rules and regulations in our own lives mm-hmm. So it was a fascinating evening. I have not read the book yet. It is definitely on a TBR that's moved up high for my 2019 reading, nice. for sure. Yeah,
1: that sounds good. I might yeah. check that one out, too. Yeah. That I'm sounds really very excited. Fascinating. I think we both come from that generation where we were told to clean your plate. Oh, yeah. You don't leave food on your plate. And then now, with everything being supersized, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, and, and uh, yeah, yeah.
0: I'll, I'll yeah. just leave it at yeah, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Portion control is a big deal yeah. for me. I... <laughs> Eat what's in front of me, yeah. so for sure. So I, w- I'm anxious to read it. And then I went to the Guilford Library right here in town and saw Andre debus the Third, yes, who quoted Willa Cather. Oh, yay, Willa! <laughs> he said, "This is an, a Willa Cather quote. A reporter can write equally well about everything that is presented to his view." but a creative writer can do his best only with what lies within the range and character of his deepest sympathies. Nice. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And he was there to talk about his new book, Gone So Long. He was asked to write an article in some big Boston paper or magazine about a gentleman who had been in prison and escaped. Hmm. And he was escaped for 25 years or something and in that time had done fantastic things started reading or after school programs for at risk youth and helped get street walkers off the streets and into jobs I mean he had done all these amazing things and then he got found out 25 years or something in put back in prison and he wasn't going to see the life out of prison again in his lifetime because of his age so in the process of Writing this article and doing research, he went to meet with one of this prisoner's ex prison mates who was now out of prison oh. and interviewed him and had a good conversation with him. And then, as they were walking out, finishing the interview, he turned to the guy and said, Hey, I know I'm not supposed to ask this question, but why were you in prison? <laughs> And he turns to him and says, "Oh, I murdered my wife." And he's wow. and then you know Andre Dubus, who has written a lot about violence in his own life, in his memoir "Townie" and in his not his novels, despises violence, particularly violence against women. So he was completely taken aback and said to him, "Did you have children with this woman?" And he said, "Oh yeah, they don't want to have anything to do with me. Not surprising." Right. <laughs> so. He said that little seed was planted in his mind, and that was the genesis for this new book, Gone So Long, although it is not based on this man's life at all. It was just the question of, you know, the relationship, which which is what Gone So Long is about, about this man who's getting out of prison after, you know, 30 years in prison or something. He had murdered his wife. And the daughter that they had together is another character in the book and doesn't want to have anything to do with him. Mm-hmm. And Andre Dubus the third, his father Andre Dubus, I don't know the second, I guess I don't yes. know, although it's never said that way, was also a famous writer. Oh, really? And he's he's incredibly debonair. He quotes authors like you wouldn't believe. He's very interesting. And the whole evening was him just talking about his writing life and how he became a writer. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was to work through the violence that he grew up with in his own life and um, addiction and things like that. And he swears that if he hadn't become a writer, he would either be in prison or dead. He finds it a very cathartic process. And he said he doesn't think he could have written this book had he not been a father of a daughter. So I thought yeah, that was really interesting. interesting. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry I missed that one. Yeah, that was the night it was, of Laura's
1: birthday. Right. So we were having birthday. Th- yes. Things happening. You had a good excuse to yes. miss it, but I
0: did miss you. And um, I really do enjoy him. I have read a lot of his books, and he too had this same theme of. He said, "When House of Sand and Fog." became a bestseller and was made into a movie. He became an overnight success after 18 years of writing right. is yeah. what he said, yeah. you know? So I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And he too teaches as well. Okay. So, yeah. so it was a wonderful evening. It was a good turnout and um, very entertaining.
1: I was at the Guilford library the other night for an event. It wasn't a book event. It was an event about black bears. Oh, right. Which yeah. Which made me want to see out a book about black bears. Mm. Um, but it also made me, i th- I'm sorry, no, I'm oh, okay. I'm good. Okay. So black bears are repopulating in Connecticut. And it made me think of the book Stone by Stone, the history of New England's walls. Oh, right. Or the history in New England's walls. Because a lot of it has to do with the deforestation that happened in the mid-19th century. Mm. So as the forest is coming back, the bears are coming back. And black bears are not aggressive towards humans normally, so... You know, you don't have to worry like it's a grizzly bear that's going to come at you. You do need to take precautions, obviously. But one thing I just want to say to listeners, if you live in an area where there are black bears, do not send your dog into the backyard to chase the bear away. Because the bear will probably kill your dog in self-defense. So don't do that. Good to know. That's all I'm going to say. Public service announcements. Yes. PSA. (laughs) Um, And this is not a Biblio adventure that I went on, but for those of you who live in Seattle... You might want to go on a biblio adventure. I guess this is um, kind of an upcoming. Okay, let's go maybe to we could do that. Johns. Upcoming Johns um, in Seattle. Uh, the book at Repertory Theater is doing a production of My Antonia, oh. Willa Cather's novel, and that's running through December 30th. It started in late November, and it's getting really great reviews. They did this back in 2008, too, I believe, and I think one of the actors who performed in that is now directing Hmm. this new run. Check it out, and if you do go, let us know how it was.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's cool. Well... The big upcoming jaunt we have is Sunday. Yeah. We're going to see Louise Penny in Concord, New Hampshire. Looking forward to that.
1: It's gonna be a yeah. great day.
0: We're I've looking never forward seen to her.
1: having a Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing her, obviously, but I'm also <laughs> looking forward to just going a little day road trip with you up I know. into a new
0: area. We've never been. I really want to do more discovering of New Hampshire, so I'm super excited. It's cool. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. And I'm going on a huge road trip starting next week. My darling son talked me into fetching his car, which is in Bend, Oregon. So I'm going to grab his car, drive down to California to fetch him and help him move to Colorado. Nice. So I'm doing what I picture to be this big L. And I'm hoping there's some stops along the way for bookstores. But I have not mapped it out because, frankly, I'm afraid that. I would be disappointed as I drive and can't get to so many of the great bookstores I right. see that I'll be passing, you yeah. know, so. And
1: just but, a reminder, we live in Connecticut.
0: Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little distance away. Yeah. <laughs> Upcoming Reads. I have The Widows by Jess Montgomery. And I don't know much about it. I know it's based loosely on the first female sheriff in Ohio. Very cool. Yeah. That sounds interesting. So already. it's a mystery, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Okay. So more to come on that. Excellent. And then I got some very exciting book mail called Passing by Nella Larson. Oh, yeah. And it's That's a Penguin a classic, classic yeah. reissue which with a beautiful new cover. Where is it? Somewhere. Oh. Oh, that's so cool. Um, You know, Penguin Classics re-releases books with new covers. Yeah.
1: Damn them. (laughs) (laughs) And what about you? I'm going to be reading The Odyssey by Emily Wilson. Well, okay, let me back up. The Odyssey by Homer, (laughs) translated by Emily Wilson. This is the book that I tried to do a slow read of. Right. A couple episodes ago, I talked about that. I, I had this vision of calmly reading a couple pages in bed, before sleeping and that just didn't work out like i i didn't want to stop reading but then i i wouldn't pick it up because i didn't want to just read a couple pages yeah so it got to the point where i just stalled mm-hmm. and so this is the classics club did another spin right. as right call it and it landed on um, the odyssey for me so perfect i'm really looking forward to actually just sitting down and reading it and james ben who writes the jimmy boyle mystery series billy boyle. billy boyle sorry he had said on Twitter, he's like, good luck with that. He's, you know, trying to read it slowly. Oh, okay. Because
0: like, it's such so a he good was right. read. Yeah, yeah. So he's totally right about that. Excellent. Yeah. Well, and the holidays are coming. So usually for me, that means some quiet time because the world kind of comes to a halt. So hopefully you'll get a chance to really dig in. Yeah. I'm looking forward Ooh, to that. Excellent. Yeah. All right, All right everybody. everybody.
1: Well, coming up next is our conversation with Bianca Murray. About Hum, if you don't know the words, so give it a listen.
0: And if you haven't read it, we highly recommend it. Also, I think it would make a fantastic gift. It would. So yeah, because it's you know that. it's not a book that is
1: hugely on people's radar yet. Mm-hmm. All, right, All right, everybody, everybody. happy, happy reading. reading. So just by way of a quick introduction for listeners, we're talking with Bianca Murray, and we're going to be talking about Hum, if you don't know the words, her novel.
2: That came out in 2017? Yes, In July 2017.
0: So um, we're so excited to have read this book. And some listeners did participate in the read-along of Born a Crime by Trevor Noah, which Bianca, you so graciously recommended when we were looking for a companion read. And that was a nonfiction book. And as you suggested, it did really set the tone for historical events and kind of what was happening in the country at the
2: time that really your novel takes place, right? Right. So- and, and the great thing about, you know, nonfiction in the way that Trevor wrote these essays is that you can give context without it sort of slowing the momentum of the story down. And, you know, although I had to do a lot of research for my novel because I was a baby when the story played out there's only so much of the research you can actually put into the novel giving context before it sort of becomes like dry textbook reading, Um, you know, and you have to take it out, which is why I I, I love reading, having my book read in conjunction with his, because it just really gives that foundation that fiction can't give. Right.
0: And it really did. I mean, particularly with like the character King George, mm-hmm. who's a colored man, it's like I completely understood what that meant, you yes. know, having read covers, but Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, from the book's perspective, when it's Robin um, narrating, you know, she just takes these things sort of at face value. And so she's not really going to contextualize what it means to be colored in South Africa. And of course, in the U.S., Colored is an offensive term generally for black people, whereas in South Africa, you know, people who are mixed race, half black, half white, self-identify as colored. And it's, it was so interesting when Trevor's book came out because my novel was already written when I read his book. And uh, he had the Kosa mother, just like beauty in my story's Kosa, you know, and there, there were so many parallels. It was wonderful.
0: Have you and Trevor ever
2: communicated about your books? I know that my editor at the time tried desperately to get my book to Trevor to see if he would possibly blurb it. Mm -hmm. Um, And his agent sort of took it from us, but his schedule was just crazy. So no, we haven't. But that would have been such an awesome blurb to have. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the book Cougar's claim to fame now is that we reached out to Trevor Noah's
0: publicist <laughs> to see if he would give us, you know, ten minutes to just talk about his book,
2: and they said no. So that's uh, all. Yeah. <laughs> but at least he wrote back. Right. <laughs> at least they <laughs> well, responded. Was- well, there we go. He said no yeah. to both of us. So, so we have a lot more in common. Yeah. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah.
2: So, how if you don't
1: know the words for for those listeners who haven't read it yet, it's a story set that starts in 1976. In South Africa, it is a dual narrative, a young girl named Robin who is almost turning 10, and then Beauty, who is a black woman who is almost turning 50, and it's their story of how they came together, and their experiences after, and well, the Soweto uprising, and the fallout from that. Right,
0: kind of during and during after. During and after, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: And I love that back and forth. And, and at first, I sometimes I'm a little hesitant about stories that go back and forth like that with such two different narrators. But it was such a beautiful relationship. And to see it from both of their perspectives, from a mature woman dealing with that extreme racism of apartheid. And then this young girl who was so innocent. Mm-hmm. And you could see how she was trained to be racist. And how
0: she slowly is untrained by mm-hmm. herself and the adults around her. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and, the, and the proximity she has, you know, once she has proximity and has more understanding and can develop her own sensibilities,
2: I felt like you portrayed that so well. Yeah. Thank you. Because a lot of that was sort of based on, uh, well, inspired by more than based on my own upbringing. So my father worked on the gold mines in South Africa and, uh, You know, all the people who worked on the mines lived in what was called mining houses uh, or on the mine property. And it was a very small kind of close-knit community, but lacking completely in diversity. So it was all white people except for their black help, so maids and gardeners. It was predominantly Afrikaans. I mean, I didn't meet my first Jewish person until I was 21 and started working for a man who was Jewish. So, you know, a very limited kind of experience. And I wanted Robin to be taken out of that microcosm and put into a much more diverse community. And that's exactly what Yovel was like in the 70s. That's where she ends up with her aunt. You know, there were people from all walks of life. It was probably one of the most diverse places in South Africa at the time. And it's amazing how when we broaden our horizons, And we interact with people who are different from ourselves how our viewpoints change Mm
0: -hmm. yeah it reminds me of brian stevenson in his book just mercy where he talks about becoming proximate you know and how important that is for people to establish their own
2: opinions and experiences yeah yeah absolutely because as as a child in south africa especially during the apartheid years you know it isn't an exaggeration to say that children were pretty much brainwashed From Mm -hmm. when they could learn how to speak, their whole view of the world, it it was this brainwashing in which you were told by teachers, by ministers, by anyone in a position of power and authority that you were this uh, race, this exalted race, and that uh, you could do pretty much whatever you wanted to black people because they were less than you. And it's, it's impossible to come out of that kind of an upbringing without having these entrenched kind of racist views of the world. Mm,
1: yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, and there's one scene, I don't remember the context and I've still only forgot my book um, today
1: <laughs> with all my little sticky notes on it. But at one point, Robin, the young girl says something about, well, how are we going to know who to fear if we don't know
2: their color? I think is what the context was. Do you, do you remember that scene? Bianca? Yeah. I, um, I'm just trying to think the exact words, you know, she, uh, she, she did she, she was like how are we supposed to know who to be scared of if people don't come in the right colors because when she's in Yeovil there is King George who is colored who's he's not black he's not white and she meets Indian people for the first time and right. so they're also brown and that also confuses her mm-hmm. so uh, yeah very much. And just that that worldview from being a little kid that she was ingrained to
1: know that you're supposed to fear somebody right yeah. and just you just think about the the brainwashing and and how that sets us up to be then adults who are always looking for problems from other people
0: right yeah yeah uh, And I thought the way that you drew Robin's character of a young girl so naive and making such tragic mistakes out of her naivete, I'm thinking about, and there are going to be some spoilers listeners, just, you know, we (laughs) haven't read the book, I'm thinking about the scene where she steals her aunt Edith. I shouldn't say steals but borrows for a period of time her aunt Edith's jewelry. Yeah, you know, and then doesn't take ownership of that mistake until she sees that there could be some real tragic circumstances that take place if if she doesn't own up to her mistake and I yeah. felt like that was such a classic 10-year-old,
2: you know, problem and yeah. how they learn. Well, with the Robin's narrative, you know, I It was interesting. So I went for a dual narrative voice with Robin because I wanted her in some instances to be this adult who is able to have hindsight and who's able to look back on her childhood with some clarity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in other instances, I wanted her to be that child completely, to be seeing things in a very unfiltered way uh, and portraying them in that way. So, you know, I experimented with Robin's voice and she's in fact an adult looking back on her life and telling her life story, but doing it with this adult's lens, but not allowing her adult self to excuse or explain things that happened in the past. So every time Robin said something, so her dialogue, her letters, when she applies for a job. Uh, All of her behavior is completely in line with a 10-year-old, very much Mm -hmm. in line with a 10-year-old. But there were definitely parts where, you know, that adult's perspective came through and and she commented on those. And obviously the end chapters, that was a lot more. But I, you know, I very specifically wanted to show how children just accept things uh, as they appear in their lives. You know, they just accept it as part of life. They don't question it too much. And, and, and so that's why she, she mostly narrates from that child, child's perspective.
0: Can you talk about her twin
2: mm-hmm. and the thought process behind her twin? <laughs> right. So her twin only came in in one of the much later rewrites. So just to give you some context on the story, the original draft spanned four decades. It wow. took Robin to her 40s, beauty to much older, uh, and the book was then rejected more than 100 times by various publishers as my agent was trying to find a home for it. And the feedback we got was that people loved certain parts of the story, but I hadn't done the whole story justice because I'd just been way too ambitious with you know, the period of the, the span of time it covered. So I then took out 60,000 words at one point Uh-oh. and rewrote the book again. And it's in one of these later drafts that Robin's twin came into the story. And the reason for that is that I was struggling at one point to show in Robin's child language and her her childish way of looking at the world, uh, one, how fractured she was within her own family, because even before her parents died, you know, she was this kid who was pulled between her mom and her dad, uh, not making either of them completely happy, but wanting so much to have them both love her, Uh, And she felt very fractured and torn. And then, of course, after their death, she struggled to show the grief. And uh, the reason Kat came in is I remember uh, years ago when I was volunteering in Soweto with HIV AIDS orphans and their caregivers uh, at the one orphanage I I volunteered at, these children were almost like children who'd come out of a wall. They were so shell-shocked by grief. They had lost multiple parents, that lost siblings, perhaps grandparents, and the amount of grief that experienced was just not something that they could process or ever verbalize, Mm. and so uh, we brought in therapy dogs at one point, and I'll never forget the one little boy wrapped his arms around this therapy dog and said, you look sad, did your mommy die, Mm. you know, and yet this child had never been able to tell us that he was sad or that he was heartbroken, So this yeah. is how much children project. And so, you know, Kat evolved from that because it was so much easier for Robin to project all these terrible qualities onto her sister, all of her grief onto her sister. Mm-hmm. So so that's how she came about.
1: Yeah, wow. that's really profound. Yeah. It really was because
2: the way you handled her grief
1: and grief within the book with other characters as well, I thought was just so close to the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, it really made me feel and it you know, the uh, Robin's, she might be telling it from that older perspective, but like you're saying, it's from her childhood, her uh, kid perspective, even the yeah. emotions, I thought were so well done with that. Yeah. Um, Thank and, you. and her grief, the way it eventually starts to come out.
2: Yeah. 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 Wow. And I was struggling with a lot of grief when I wrote the book as well, you know? So, I mean, grief was always supposed to, be a part of it because obviously Robin's parents had been murdered. Um, but I think it became much more a part of it than I than I actually thought uh, it was going to be. And that's where writing as therapy yeah. is uh, so incredibly useful.
1: Yeah. yeah. And then the humor, though, too, that balances it all. I just want listeners to know it's, it's a, a very heart-wrenching, hard, painful book to read at times, but there's so much beauty and hope. And humanity mm-hmm. and warmth in it as well. That mm-hmm. it's it blew me away. I, I couldn't read another novel. I couldn't pick up my next novel for a couple days because it just
0: needed to to percolate within me. And yeah. Yeah. I felt the same way. And I read it a little bit after Chris. And so we had already recorded an episode where she had had to look, you know, for another book after yours. And I <laughs> this last week, like nothing. I can't read anything now. <laughs> yeah. Thank you also a little thread of a mystery you know and so it's a page turner in that way as well because you really want to know where the story is going but I really found myself like I want to turn the pages a little slower because I
2: don't want it to end
0: but I want to know what happens. That's brilliant
2: because that's exactly what I wanted you know and I I wanted it to be accessible because so many South African writers and so many South African stories are extremely extremely literary And really dark. I mean, I don't know if you've read any J.M. Kutsia, Waiting for the Barbarians, Disgrace, uh, Nadine Gordimer as well. I mean, there's South Africans who've been nominated for Nobel Prizes and won Pulitzers, etc. But, um, you know, the books are tough going because the the subject matter is just really heavy. Um, And it's kind of relentless in that it it doesn't, you know, uh, let go of you enough for you to have that moment where you're able to exhale and and go, phew, okay, now I can carry on with the rest of it. And so for me, it was important to, one, portray that South Africans have an amazing sense of humor. South Africans love to laugh. And it's kind of a black sense of humor. It's this dark sense of humor because the worst things are um, and, and sort of the more deprived people are in South Africa and the more violence they've been exposed to, sort of the more they laugh about things. And it's definitely a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I wanted to bring that through. And also, I'm not able to read a book that's just constantly depressing. So although the book deals with, you know, racism and homophobia and anti-Semitism and grief, it was really important to me that there were moments where you just had to laugh. And there was general silliness to, to balance that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well,
1: and another thing that runs through the book is the woman's movement, too, with aunt Edith and cause it's 1976 there, there is a television ban in South Africa at this time, which I didn't know about, but aunt Edith is a, a flight attendant. So she's traveling the world and she's really hip and in the know and a huge Elvis Presley fan. Um, And one of the things I read called her loving, but irresponsible. And I really love the way you portrayed her though. Cause I didn't really see her as irresponsible. I saw her as very honest about who she was and what she wanted and struggling in the beginning with thinking she, when she is um, made Robin caretaker mm-hmm. that she had to give it all up and somehow be this different type of person.
2: Yeah. It was fascinating for me how readers responded to Edith. Uh, and it made me realize even more how, you know, books are mirrors we hold up to ourselves and we see in the books what's already within ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I had some readers, I had one reader at a book club uh, start off by asking which character, no, no, she wanted to ask which character was me, which character was most me. But just before she asked this, she, she went off for five minutes about why she disliked Edith so much. Oh. And Edith was selfish and Edith is this and Edith is that. And after that, she said, which character you know, is you? And I was like, well, Edith. <laughs> because, because the thing that I saw in Edith is I saw a woman who was honest enough with herself to say, I am not having these expectations forced on me. I'm not having... Um, societal expectations forced on me. I don't want to get married. I don't want to have children. I want to travel. This is what I want to do with my life. And I saw Robin's mom as wanting the same, very much mm-hmm. wanting the same for her life. But then her life went in a different direction and, and she got pregnant and felt forced into motherhood, which is why she wasn't a very good mother, because mm-hmm. she was quite resentful of this child's presence in her life. And yet Edith was just so true to herself. Edith, knew what she wanted. She had motherhood thrust upon her when Robin just unexpectedly arrived. And, you know, she wasn't very good at it. She did the best she could. Um, But yeah, I just saw her as this wonderful feminist character. And she was loosely based on my favorite aunt, who was also a bit of a maverick in the 70s. She wasn't a flight attendant, but, you know, she also um, she had a child out of wedlock which at that time was considered scandalous and, and didn't m- ever marry. You know, and that inspired me. And I remember whenever I used to visit her, I just absolutely adored her. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to show that that kind of strong female in the 70s. Uh, I
0: liked her a lot. Yeah, yeah she's was great. Well, and yeah. I also think that there was a period of time where she was doing her own grieving over the loss of her sister. And one of the hardest things about being a parent during a time that you're grieving is that it's relentless, you know? Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely relentless. Your kids get up every day and need things, you know? Yeah, and I thought you yeah.
2: portrayed that so well. And, and also, you know, you're trying to manage it for, for your children because, you know, often uh, there, there may be a husband and wife and the husband passes away and the wife has to now deal with her children's grief mm-hmm. while managing her own grief. And something I've learned through personal experience is that, If you try and delay or put off grief until a better time, because you're trying to be strong for other people, it's going to manifest in ugly ways down the line when you actually think you're over it, because it won't be put off. And well, it'll be put off, but not for long, you know. And so uh, Edith needed to mourn. and, And it wasn't just her sisters, Edith was mourning. I mean, she was mourning her own life as she had set it up, uh, potentially ending. Because if she'd had to give up her travel and everything else, that was her life she would have had to say goodbye to.
0: Right, right. And the options when she tried to find other work weren't pretty. You know, she was already doing what she loved. Yeah. yeah, That that was a very interesting thread of the book, I thought. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought it was a very honest look at
1: what a woman in that situation might go through. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I was thinking about it because I'm godmother to eight children, and wow. I have uh, said to their parents, Please don't ever travel together because <laughs> it'll be like the scene from Annie where I'm dripping with little girls, you know? So, yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah,
0: that's, that's a novel in the making, yeah. right there, Bianca. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you, and um, I, I my fingers are crossed under the table as I'm asking you this question. Are we going to see these characters again ever?
2: Right. So I planned for this to actually be a sequel. I planned for there to be at least two books, potentially three, to be able to tell the story properly. Uh, and after um, I finished hum, I started on the sequel, and I got halfway through it, and then showed my publisher. And they liked it, but they just said the problem was it wasn't standalone enough. I started the very next morning Mm. uh, after where Hum finishes. And this genre doesn't really lend itself to sequels, et cetera. So I think unless, you know, it gets made into a movie or uh, becomes a New York Times bestseller at some point, it's unlikely that the sequel will be published. But I couldn't resist putting Robin and Beauty into the next book that I've just written, Uh, And that's called If You Want to Make God Last. And that'll be coming out in July next year. And it's a standalone book. It's as well based in South Africa. Three female narrators this time, three protagonists, which was quite tricky compared to two. But uh, Beauty and Robin make cameo appearances in the story so that you're able to see what they're up to in the mid to late 90s. So fantastic. I can uncross my fingers now. <laughs> I, I really hope that I do get to write the proper sequel one day. You never know. Yeah. You know.
1: That's yeah. Great.
2: Yeah, I look forward to that. So you are teaching now. Yes. It's, it's the strangest, you know, uh, full circle moment. So when I arrived in Toronto with my husband in 2012, first thing I did was sign up with the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies to do the creative writing certificate program. Because even though I've written my whole life, even though I've always loved writing, and even though I wrote two books before I wrote Hum, I'd never studied writing properly. So I really wanted to study it. And so I did three years of the certificate program, which is when I started writing Hum, if you don't know the words. And yeah, now I'm going to be teaching one of the courses in that certificate program, which is amazing. It's fabulous. Full circle. Yeah. Yeah, complete. I, I, you know, I think back to my first day in one of those classes, and if somebody had told me then I'd not only go on to publish, but that I'd one day be teaching that class, I absolutely would not have believed them.
0: <laughs> That's That's great. great.
1: Yeah.
2: I know we have some writers who listen, some some budding
1: writers. Is there, you do you have like one big piece of advice for people who like to have a writing life?
2: Sorry, that's Muggle going crazy. Hold on. Muggle. I love his name. Yes. Yeah, we Harry Potter fans, we had all these pets named after Harry Potter characters. Um, (laughs) We had a dachshund called Dobby because she looked like a house elf and used to steal socks. (laughs) Uh, Right. So so in terms of um, writing, the advice that I can give is – sorry – so we're, getting, we're getting a treat from Muggle. Yeah, Muggle's getting a treat so she can stop barking. Right. So the advice I give is, one, surround yourself with people who can give you excellent critique and who really want you to succeed. So the greatest things that I did was in these writing classes, I joined writing groups. So in each class, I would meet someone amazing whose work I loved and they got my work. And so we would join together with other people and form writing groups. And it was just the most helpful exercise because if you as a writer give your work to your significant other or your mother or a friend, they're going to tell you it's absolutely amazing, Uh, which which is great. Sometimes you just need to hear that your work is absolutely amazing, but it's not going to make your work better. And so if you share your work with people who are in the same boats as you, who get what you're trying to do, because that's very important. Elizabeth Gilbert wrote this amazing article, I think about a year or two ago, about who creative people should show their work to, because she had a bad experience where she showed a work in progress to the wrong person and got the wrong feedback, which almost ended the work in progress. And I've had the same experience myself. So show it to people who are invested in you, in your writing journey, who get what you're trying to do and are able to give you critique accordingly that'll make the work better Um, and who can support you because, you know, there are days that it can be really awful. I mean, writers by their very nature are meant to be sensitive people, um, more sensitive than other people, which makes all the rejection, all the criticism that much harder. Every time I would get a rejection letter, I would scan the first line for the but, however, nevertheless, you know, <laughs> and, and your heart would just drop and you'd be so depressed. So, you know, that support is, is extremely, extremely important. And then for me, it's about just reworking your work, just rewriting, redrafting. I was in classes with people who I can promise you were way more talented as writers than I am. And you know, they haven't published simply because they didn't want it as badly as I did. Mm. And I think when you really want it, and there's a particular story that you really want told, you're prepared to take all the criticism you receive uh, and just keep reworking it. I'd I'd hate to think how many brilliant books are languishing in a drawer somewhere because somebody just gave up on working on it to just get it to the next level. Yeah,
1: that's fantastic advice. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have one more question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, And I'm not sure if this is something you want to discuss in public. Hmm. But I hear you were once bitten by a giraffe. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That is very, very true. (laughs) And and this was one of those instances where I couldn't react the way I wanted to because I was holding my one-year-old godchild at the time. He was having his birthday party at a um, sanctuary in South Africa. And we were up on this platform feeding the giraffes. And I don't know if you've ever seen a giraffe's tongue. Yeah, they're very long, right? (laughs) Long and black and super, super scary. And I was holding one of these treats and I got distracted with my godchild. And I didn't release the treat quickly enough. And so the giraffe wrapped its tongue around my wrist pulled my oh. hand into its mouth and <laughs> bit down on it. Oh <laughs> and of course, the I, I just wanted to let loose with some very colorful language at this point, which I couldn't do because I was surrounded by all of these children. But I do still have the scar to prove it. Oh, wow. wow. Did you have to get stitches? No, no, I didn't. But we did have to clean it up. It, it did look a bit dodgy, but no stitches. Thank goodness. This is the great thing about vegetarian mammals (laughs) (laughs) that's a great story because i thought wow giraffes aren't known for biting people i wonder what happened (laughs) i think this one acquired a taste for blood after this incident and probably started stalking humans after that so i'm not quite sure but yeah so if we ever go and we see the carnivorous
0: uh giraffe, we'll know
2: it was the one that bit you. <laughs> You'll know who got it started on the road to destruction. <laughs> yeah, oh, um, well, yeah. Bianca, we just
0: loved your book so much. I'm so excited that it's not too long to wait till July for your yes. next
2: one. So we yes. will anxiously await that. Thank you, thank you so much. And please, I'm um, available as. As much as I can possibly be to Skype to book clubs, etc., people can just find my email address on the website. So you know, I, I love chatting to readers at any time. If anyone's listening, would like me to to phone into one of the book clubs, I'd be happy to do so.
1: Great, we'll um, do that. We'll definitely put the link to in our on our website so yeah. people can find you in that way as well. That's wonderful.
0: We'll offer. Yeah. Take her up on it, everybody. <laughs>
2: Thank you so much, Bianca. Thanks so much
1: to both of you. Keep well. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us, On whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.